Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected conversations. I'm your host, Danielle Kingstrom. Today's guest is Paul Thomas Darlick. He is a writer and poet and is working on his first book, The Butterflies in God's Stomach. What Paul Thomas brings to the conversation today is sharing his experience about how he lived in El Salvador working as a bean farmer and how that experience took him to help work with a nonprofit foundation aimed at making sure that clean water access was available to impoverished areas. Paul also takes us on this journey of looking at the Bible in a different way, and he portrays it through a 15-beat, three-act plot. Now, Paul is a poet. And so his expressionism of the love story of God is going to be unexpected for many people, including myself. When I read through some of the PDFs that were available for a couple of his introductory chapters of his upcoming book, The Butterflies in God's Stomach, I was pleasantly surprised by the poetry in motion and that was pulled out of the Bible. And what we discuss is how we need to start viewing the Bible as a collection of stories and how we can take the different interpretations and the different ways that the Bible resonates with us and apply that to a practical life. He also expounds on why uh, your eschatology does play into the way you live your life. And we kind of break that down a little bit as well. For more information on how to connect with Paul Thomas Darlek, or Darzalek, I hope I said that right, You can check out his website, butterfliesbook.com, where you can receive a couple of PDFs right away before the book is published. And you could read more about the Bible's love story recomposed as a romantic adventure in poems and prose. You can also check out his about page on paulthomasauthor.com, or you can connect with him on Facebook. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Remarkable, but a big part of it is just having like your developmental stages correspond with what you're learning. Like there is no sense in trying to make a kid learn to read earlier. If you let them read when that is developmentally appropriate, they learn easily and they love it and they enjoy it and they don't feel frustrated for all those years of not being able to figure it out. I agree. I agree. I've been letting my kids guide me with their passions. And my my one son, I have twins that are eight. And so girl and boy and my boy, he is autistic and nonverbal. Mm. And he went through speech therapy and he went through physical therapy and everything for a while. And I was like, this isn't doing anything for me. He didn't want to learn sign language. And so, and we tried really hard with sign language, but he was like, I'm not having it. I don't like this. He would literally move my face for me to talk to him. He did not like the silence. Um, and it's really funny is we were so, we just didn't know what to do. We were like, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes. And then there was this thing our church hosted with this guy named Rich Melham. And he talked about, um, how to keep the family together. And there was, there was this one portion of this practice that you do to just try and reconnect with your families. Like you do tickle fights or pillow fights before bed. And I loved that idea. So we implemented that pillow fights and tickle fights. And um, I got to speak to him and he was, you know, we were talking and we told him about our son and we said, you know, our biggest concern is he's never going to talk. We're never going to hear him say, I love you. And he just looked at us and he took both of our hands and he's like, he will talk. 
when he's ready. And we took that to heart and we just held that there and he started talking. Um, he's, he's still kind of got his own language. I think it's like a YouTube language, honestly. It's like sometimes he sounds like he's trying to speak Japanese and other times I think he's speaking Spanish. And But he didn't want to have anything to do with writing or anything. And then all of a sudden this year, he was like writing everything he could. And I'm going, wait, you were listening to me? You got all that? You know, because I just taught them all together. And I was like, I'm not going to treat him differently. I'm just going to teach him, let him sink it in. And he would throw fits and just be like, I'm just going to play with my Legos. I just want to color. Um, And then I, you know, thought, okay, let's see where he's at it with math. And I wrote down a bunch of problems on our white erase board. He filled them all in with all the answers. And so I was like, we've never sat down and done this work together before. He's been listening. So I don't know. I just, I just felt like I had to, you know, they forced me to learn how to be present. Yeah. You know, Yeah. just feel into them and be there with them and just keep trying and teaching and yeah, they just all showed me what they were interested in. So I really love that. Exactly. Have you, by the way, ever seen a TED Talk or I think there was a Radio Lab episode about a guy who he worked in the film industry, had an autistic child, thought he was non-communicative, babysat him. He was obsessed like with just this. He, had, he was obsessed with Disney films. And then he started just singing in characters' voices like uh, segments of the film that are emotionally appropriate to the situation. And it was like they broke through and this dad and son developed this wow. way of communicating. His kid was nonverbal until they started like singing Disney tunes. And they both had watched so min- much that they have this emotional repertoire of like oh my things on the shelf they could pick from. So they might be, you know, singing in Jafar's voice or whoever, you know, and it, it was pretty cool. If you've never seen that, um, Maybe I'll look I'm going to look into that. I mean, that sounds that sounds fascinating. It's fascinating. I don't know how representative it is of raising an autistic child. That's a very wide yeah. spectrum. But anyway. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Okay, so Paul, tell me how you say your last name. Well, Grandma says that it's pronounced Darjilek. Darjilek. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. You wouldn't know from the spelling. No, no. When you um you spelt it out, I, I think phonetically in the email, and I was like sitting here like, Darzelek. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, okay, Czech. I'm like, and you know, my, I think my husband is Czechoslovakian. Oh yeah. Or has it in his heritage, and is that Bohemian too? Yeah. Is that yeah? That? Yeah, that's what I thought. And his mom used to tell me about stuff, and you know, I'm looking at him like, do you know how to pronounce this? I don't know what that means. Right, right. So, (laughs) okay, well, I think I'm close. (laughs) My family came over from the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at the time and then lived in like Texas farming communities for four generations. And I'm the first generation that didn't learn. I was exposed to Czech culture, like our weddings were Czech and things like that, but, Mm -hmm. but not the language. So my grandparents were bilingual, but spoke a version that was kind of like a time capsule. So the Czech government would pay them to go tour as musicians. And they were a real novelty because they spoke like a late 1800s Czech. And so Czech people would be like, oh, how quaint. It'd be like, you know, if Nathaniel Hawthorne came back to America and we'd listen to how he speak, spoke New England English or something like that. So there was this, oh my gosh. Yeah, a time capsule in America. It's kind of neat. That's awesome. I would love if Nathaniel Hawthorne came back and, and spoke. That would be interesting to listen to. Yeah. I'm a fan of his work. 
<laughs> okay, so I listened to your audio clips of the butterflies in God's stomach. I have to tell you, it it pinged down a frequency. The idea that um, that the Bible is a love story. I was I've actually been researching theories of love, and I came across a theory of love just recently. Um, by a psychologist named Robert J. Sternberg. And he has the theory of love as a story. That is a duplex of his theory of love as a triangle. And his his breakdown of this theory of love as a story is that there's all these, there are these common genres of um, different stories that we, we see love as. So some people see love as an addiction, as an art, as a business, as a collection, um, as humor, mystery, fantasy, horror, stuff like that. And I just thought, you know, that that was just on a wavelength that I thought was really serendipitous. Um, but I really thought, too, after listening to it, I was like, you know, we need a love story. We need to see that that everything that God has provided is through a love story. And if we really understood that our relationship with God is a love story, that creation is a love story. I can't help but wonder if we would have such a different lens on everybody we look at. So I'm just curious, what brought you to this idea that you saw that everyone was telling the Bible is a story, but you're like, what story? What story is it? Well, it's obvious. It's a love story. So what brought you to that? Yeah. I mean, so part of what brought me to it is... Okay, that question instantly evokes like the logjam of of <laughs> There's all of these things, yeah. So I'll just start listing them off, and then you can shut me up if you need to. Part of it is just disposition, right? Since I was a child in earliest childhood, um, I you know I'd go to church and I'd have you know before my while I'm sitting in the pews before my feet could touch the ground, I remember looking around and going like. Do the grown-ups really believe all of this? Just because there was kind of a feeling like maybe we'd probably be living differently if we really believed it all. Mostly at that point, I'm I'm thinking, you know, in terms of heaven and hell. Does it really hinge on all this? But then, you know, I knew that Jesus was what it's all about. So I'd like tune in. I grew up Catholic, and in Catholic masses, there's you know a, a liturgical calendar. So there's an Old Testament reading. Um, a New Testament reading and a gospel reading. So I'd go, okay, e even if you zoned out while Father Flanagan was talking about this and that, tune in for Jesus. And, you know, it was always about love. And that just resonates with something deep inside. So so I've been clear to myself that I privilege, you know, the, that one verse from John. And to, to some extent, none of us really read the Bible. The, the Bible reads us. It it, mm -hmm. The Bible is this massive collection it, and a literary collection that we look to. And really what we put value on is a reflection of us more than it is. You can get you. I bet you know the Bible well enough to derive any kind of theology you want. If you want a smashing baby skulls against the rocks theology, you can extract that from the theology. So what lens am I going to read this through? And when you read it through the lens of God is love, which it, there's some logic to reading it through that lens, like God is love is probably the only verse in the Bible that 
at least mystics and prophets and poets of every tradition throughout time agree on as a personal experience of God. You can look at mystics throughout the ages and they experience God is love as a transcendent reality, not just a concept, but like a, that, that, the, that all the love we ever experience is a participation in God's being. And, you know, John says, you know, if you know love, you know God. Well, how many walls just came down with that if we take it seriously? So for a long time, that's how I've read scripture. In my 20s, I had a deep desire to take my faith really seriously. And I didn't really know there wasn't it didn't feel like there was an outlet to do that in a way that I wanted to, in a way that fulfilled my sense of adventure and kind of what I wanted. I, I was like, you know, graduated from college and lamenting that, like, I live in this era and there's not a new part of America. To I wanted to be Lewis and Clark or, you know, I wanted to go to the moon. Like, what's what's new? Mm-hmm. So what was new for me was putting on a backpack and backpacking around Central America. And doing that, I just disappeared into the poorest community I had ever seen. And I led, I'd convened the community around a little Bible study. These are people, they've never been to a day of school or anything. It was the poorest, it was a little village called Tierra Nueva in the mountains of El Salvador. And I just want to know what's it like to be a bean farmer. And so then as we would read these, I, I'm a literary person. My, my college degree is in English literature. And that's another way that I approach the Bible is as a, a literary tradition, because that's actually what it is. Um, when you open the Bible, you don't find, mm-hmm. you never find, you would be shocked if you opened to the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel was saying, we have to obey the Bible. Look, theologically, we got to do what you would be shocked. No, what is Ezekiel saying when you open that? He's like, you know, waters were pouring. He's, he communicates a vision. There, oh, there's wheels in the sky and they're covered with eyeballs. And there's deep poetic imagery. Looking at the Bible as a literary tradition, as I led that under the mango tree Bible study, I started to see a a story emerge from it. Um, and I got obsessed with that idea. And so there's like 10 more layers of how I dug down. Maybe they'll come out in the, in the, in the course of this conversation, but if God is love and the Bible is God's story or the story between God and humankind, well, then what kind of story is it? If God is love, it's a, it's a love story. And so then I looked at the Bible through that lens. One, one more th- thing, what that life in El Salvador led me to was my, my children, were my children, my neighbor's children were all dying. 20 out of 20 families in Tierra Nueva knew what it was like to lose a child in infancy. And when you would ask moms, how'd your baby die? Almost invariably, their answer was, well, well di- diarrhea. Sorry about that. There was a spam risk there. No worries. Anyway, their answer was diarrhea. And so I learned how to drill water wells. And I started, I trained some Salvadoran folks. And we started a ministry that partnered with churches to drill water wells at churches, orphanages, schools, and clinics so that people could have safe drinking water. That led my career path. But meanwhile, all the while, I had this love story spinning in the background. And, and that's been the, the, the focus of my kind of personal Bible studies is how, how would you? And since I was into water, there's tons of water imagery. In fact, there is 
a stream of water that flows from the Bible's first scene to its last one. So I thought, well, what would it be like to follow that stream of water through Scripture story? So I've got a, a Bible with a sticky note that everywhere in the Bible that water is mentioned, I've got a little sticky note. Okay, what does it look like to flow down that river of water from in the beginning to all things new, from God hovering alone over the surface of the deep to the Lord and his bride, us, together at last on their throne, the river of the water of life flowing out from under them as they say, come all who are thirsty and drink. Well, those are two bookends of a story that is a love story that has all the good stuff that good stories has, have. It's got, you know, love, betrayal, murder, war, sex, rape, incest. It's got, all, you know, it's, it makes Game of Thrones look pretty mild. But it, all the while, that river that flows out from Eden and culminates in the very last scene of the Bible is reflecting God's love all the way. And so I got really obsessed with, with that story. Here, here is, by the way, that Bible. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It, yeah. <laughs> Let me pull out my There we here. go. I got duct tape <laughs> <Yeah>. all over. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing. Um, mine are not very organized, so I'm always like, I should have done some <laughs> color coordination system. Didn't think about that. I love how you found a flow of water throughout the whole Bible and that you also worked as a well driller and then worked with a Living Waters um, nonprofit organization to bring water to people. I thought that was such a when I when I heard you say that in your little audio clips, I thought, wow, to to just somehow happen to end up in El Salvador to go from starting out as a bean farmer to realize and you yourself said you were experiencing kidney problems as well. And that was because of, can you tell about how, where, where you would have to go to get your water and what that trickle of water meant for everybody in the community and, okay. and how little it was? So life in Tierra Nueva looked like this. Um, so I, I was working, there was, there was something in El Salvador during the war years in the 80s called Christian base communities. It was this kind of a church phenomenon that we can, get into as a separate topic, but I got really fascinated with it. And I started working with the Salvadoran organization. Now, th this is at the tail end of me just backpacking around Central America, putting off getting a real job one day when I come back to the United States. And, um, and so then I ended up just going, well, why don't I just go live in the poorest community I'd ever seen? Part of it was a Christian conviction, just that this is incarnational ministry. If our thing is that through Jesus, God came to be with us, well, maybe we ought to do that for other people. And part of it was just adventure. What would it be like to be a bean farmer in El Salvador living among the poorest of the poor? So I did that. And to get water, we would walk down a ravine. It would be about a 20-minute walk downhill. And then there would be a rock with a crack in it. And you would grab a leaf off of a tree and wedge it into that rock to form a little spout. And that little trickle of water would fill a five-gallon bucket, or cantaro we called it, every 35 minutes. 
So there'd be this big line. You'd go out in the morning and there'd be a big line of colorful cantaros in line as people wait for their water. And you go f- work in your bean field and you come back. And if you've advanced in line, then you could put it under your water trickle. And then in 35 minutes, you'd have five gallons of water that you put on your shoulder. And then you walk 20 minutes back up a hill. Now you have five gallons of water at home. Well, when that's what it takes to get water, you you use a lot less of it. And apparently I learned the hard way. If you don't drink enough water, then your kidneys can get infected. And then they start shedding cells in order to uh, deal with that infection. And then, and then it feels like you have kidney stones. So I was hospitalized a couple times uh, with that. So my ears started perking up every time I heard about water. And that's how that whole life as, um, as a water well driller began. Wow. Wow. Yeah. When I read that story, I thought, you know, there, I remember days just here on the farm where we, I'm just stingy sometimes and I don't want to do hoses and sprinklers and I use water buckets and watering, um, containers and just going over to the well to fill them up and carry them around was, a lot of work. And then when we were putting our cattle out to pasture, lugging these big 10 gallon tanks back there with them so that they could have, you know, water during the hot days. And I thought about that and I was like, well, most people couldn't handle doing that. And then I heard your story and I'm like, I could have never done that. Like, I mean, I would have had no choice, but to put yourself in that situation, like intentionally that you did, I'm like, what would drive a person to go? I want to I want to be so extremely impoverished right now. But then I thought, well, I mean, if you wouldn't have done that, you wouldn't have had all these visions and connections. And it was like, how did you ever imagine that that would be some kind of like a, a, a building of a force when you left? Was that what you were hoping would happen, that you'd be struck by some kind of awe inspiring thing that you were like, now I know my mission in life? I, I had no idea what it would be. I had a strong intuition that things will work out. So when I was in college, I kind of bounced around. I ended up getting my degree in English literature. But before that, I studied philosophy. Before that, I studied psychology. Before that, it was criminal justice. I thought I wanted to work in the juvenile justice system. I was bouncing around. And then in my last year or two, I declared a major. Next thing I knew, I had a degree. And it was a lot like, this is a little willy-nilly, man. What are you doing? And there aren't... Are, it, it's it's just a it's just a trope. It's a joke that there aren't jobs out there for English literature majors. And I had this experience. I walked into a, um, a, a theories of learning course with Dr. Furman, and I sat down for class. And I had you, you know that feeling when you have a memory. You're like, oh yeah, like there's a you have that ah like there's certain there's a There's a feeling you can have when you have a memory and it feels like an epiphany or a revelation. You're like, oh, I'd forgotten all about that. I had that experience, but it was as though it was about the future. And to this day, I have no clue what induced it or how it came about, but it was like, oh yeah, everything turns out. As though in some other realm, perhaps I know this life and it's a learning machine or a test or something. I have no clue. I don't have a, a theory around that. But I, I put a lot of credence into those kind of 
just experiences that feel like revelation. And so I knew things worked out. And so I felt like it was okay. Also, it wasn't completely about, okay, part of it was the rich young man. It was like, <clears throat> well, sell all your stuff and, and follow me. Okay, well, if I'm going to do that, may as well do it while it's easy. All I, you know, all I had to sell was a, was a, 1973 Sportster Harley Davidson. <laughs> so I sold that and then went on the road in Central America. And it, part of it was adventure, but I'll tell you, I didn't feel poor. I felt rich. I, I was having fun. Like I was having fun just listening to people's stories. We'd sit around at night under the light, you know, with the light of a, a it would be like a brake fluid can filled with kerosene with a wick in it. And by that light, I would hear these people tell stories about what's important in their lives and see the world through a completely uneducated, but, you know, smart. Human beings are smart creatures. But like if you never been to a day of school, you just see the world quite differently. I was just having a blast. And also I knew when I got sick. So when I got sick, I woke up one morning and it was just like, oh, pain in my gut. And then, and then it would be like, I have to pee, but I can't. And then, and then I would, and I'm peeing blood. And then I'm like, oh, I'm a three hour walk away from like civilization. <laughs> Maybe this will go. And people are bringing me like boiled teas in, in these gourds. They go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This, the leaf of the, this plant and that plant in these little gourds. And they give it, I I'd just gulp them down. And somebody was like, he needs the strong medicine. And somebody was like, I have some at my house. And then he like takes off to his house, which is miles away, comes back. And it was Alka-Seltzer, which they were very impressed by because it fizzes. The, that action, oh they're gosh, like, whoa, that's... this is real medicine. And I was like, oh. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I'll gulp that down. But I don't think. And then it was like, finally, it was like, this isn't going away. It's getting worse. So I had to walk three hours out of the hills like that. I got down to La Libertad, the nearest town, and I, I bought a coconut. You know, they cut the top off the coconut and you can drink the coconut water. I was so thirsty, I drank the coconut water and then puked it all out right there at the stand where I bought it. Got in a taxi, though, and because I paid this cheap, my insurance policy was it was 25 bucks a month. But if you could get to this one, the Hospital de Diagnostico in San Salvador, if you could get there, they'd treat you. That was kind of the insurance deal. And I did. And next thing I know, though, I'm sitting in a climate controlled room and there's machines that go beep and there's highly educated people all around me and they're like taking sample. It felt like a luxury hotel because I was thinking every single one of my neighbors without any exception would have just sipped on boiled leaves until they died. What they diagnosed me with was a was a ruptured appendix. Now that was, I learned later when the same symptoms happened a year later, I went in and said, this is what's happening. And it's not a ruptured appendix because I don't have one. But <laughs> so I was like, I'm so rich. I can have unnecessary surgery. This is amazing. <laughs> but we, they took out my appendix and the antibiotics they gave me for that, which they do as a matter of routine. Anytime they open you up, you know, took care of the, the infection. So I learned a year later when I had the same symptoms that, uh, that that's what it was. It was a kidney infection. It's crazy. I, I peed in a cup that time. I don't, this might be gross, but <laughs> it was like the color of Coca-Cola. And it had little flakes in it like a snow globe. You know, when oh you like gosh. shake a snow globe at Christmas. I was like, so the doctor was like, what the hell is this that's coming out of me? She said the white flakes are like cells from your kidney your kidneys shedding cells to like rid itself of oh infection <laughs> and that's what it was 
And she gave me some kind of drug that took away the pain instantly. And it was amazing. It was almost worth the, must be what heroin users feel like or something. Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> But but the the point I set out to make there in my rambling way is that it, far from feeling like I, I took a vow of poverty or anything, it was like, dude, no, if I broke a leg, I would one way or another get airlifted out of here. Like, I'm so rich, just just as a function of the culture I was born into, just as the fact that I could I could leave my backpack behind, walk out of here, get on a bus, come to America and find a job like and so as a young person in my 20s, figuring out my place in the world, it was like, oh, the, once I got out of my culture of origin, it was like really obvious what a place of privilege I come from. I could have otherwise been like, oh, I learn, earn less than everybody who earns more than me and lived an entire life where I felt, you know, underprivileged and screwed over by the man or whatever. And it was for me, it was really empowering. Um just taken off, you know, that way. So anyway, that's a little about life in Tierra Nueva. That's great. And I love that you were enriched by them as well. I mean, you came in with this privilege, but they enriched you more so than you probably could have ever experienced living in the way you were. In, in my realization of where I stand financially, but also spiritually in really deep ways. Yeah. A, a fun experience. It's just an example. That, there's so many of these. Like I talked about sitting around at night uh, by kerosene lamp, just like talking until you go. I slept in a hammock that was made out of fibers from a maguey cactus. Like people would weave them. And my house was just sticks stuck in the ground. I had a tin roof, but not, even, not everybody had a tin roof. And um, one night sitting around that candle, a guy, um, Justo Ramirez, who's kind of the spiritual leader of the community and recognized as such as just who he was. Like if you were in his presence, you'd, you'd recognize the same in him. And he said, hey, you know, I'd been living there for six months or something. And, and they go, hey, I got a question. In your country, in the United States, why is it that they just kick out newcomers? Like a, when a newcomer comes here, like you, we got you set up with a piece of land to farm and, you know, you didn't know how to farm. So we taught you how to farm. We just like, yeah, that seems like the normal thing to do. You'd help, you, you lend someone a hand. But why is it that you're so intent on just kicking out newcomers, you know, and, and just him using the term newcomer rather than illegal immigrant or, or even immigrant, like immigrant just means that you used to be somewhere else. Like for once you were there, now you're here. That's all it means, you know? And so that those are real paradigm shifting questions, very simple questions, hearing it from somebody like who just sees the world in a really pure way. Like there was a little kid named Juan, who was my favorite, <laughs> he was like five years old. He was being raised by a pretty abusive uncle. So he always found reasons to hang out with me all day long. And he asked me, how long does it take to get here on by bus? From America. And I said, well, it takes about three days on public buses, but I didn't get here on a bus. I came here on an airplane. And his response was, you fit in an airplane. And I said, yeah. He goes, but they're so tiny. <laughs> He's only seen airplanes up in the sky. Oh. <laughs> he was like, they're so tiny. How do you fit in an airplane? <laughs> That's how far the way they are, Juan. I was like, oh, you're kidding. <laughs> wow. 
there's like an innocence and a purity, especially in little kids, you know. Yeah. And so I'm sorry. And so was it your time spent in El Salvador that that drew you to uh, Oscar Romero? I noticed that you wrote a piece on him. Totally. Yeah. Um, So. Romero was very associated with that kind of Christian-based communities, which is a process that happened in Latin America related to, it kind of flipped the church on its head. This is in a largely Catholic context. But what ha- one thing that happened when with Vatican II and the Catholic Church is that Bibles were translated into native languages, whereas the church had always a couple generations ago, really a generation ago from me, um, you know, mass was in Latin, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly there's all these <laughs> Spanish language translations, including ones like La Biblia Latinoamericana, which is just the people's language, like kind of Eugene Peterson type, you know, maybe, maybe a bit more of a translation than a paraphrase. But in any event, just the regular person could read it. And it was, there was this historical process throughout Latin America of people kind of reading it going, holy shit, this is about us. Like God, God's on our side, like against the empire. Okay. I thought we were the heroes of this story, but they not the way they presented it. And it changed everything. And it led to a lot of revolutions that took political form necessarily, because that's the only outlet for changing things. There, there was also a church dimension to it all. And so anyway, Romero was one of the most Christ-like lives that I'm aware of. And he's one of those that was, at least in my estimation, like stayed the line as a Jesus follower. It was very easy to fall into like us, them politics. And Mm -hmm. and Romero remained a God's love is for everyone person. He's framed as a, as an insurgent. He's framed as taking the side of the poor, but that's just because most human rights violations were against the poor. So if you denounce all human rights violations, then you'll end up denouncing the government 85% of the time and the people or even the revolutionary and guerrillas 15% of the time. Those numbers come from the UN Truth Commission. Anyway, I ended up working with... So the first priest that Romero ever ordained was named Octavio Ortiz. And he too was assassinated. At a, he was leading a, a youth retreat and they just came in and, and blew him away and ran over his head with a tank. And I, I worked with that guy's sister. So she knew Romero. And so I worked with her for, for many years. And that, that's where I learned Spanish. It was, you know, I just dumped myself into a place where I was the only English speaker. And so I was really close to the circles that Oscar Romero mm. ran in and people who were inspired by him. So I would, everywhere you go, and it was really remarkable. You go to the poorest community. Everybody has a Romero story. Everyone. It would be like, you're out somewhere, and it's like, why do you love Romero so much? Oh, one time the National Guard came through, and they just rounded up the women from the choir and just raped them all. And we called Romero. Like, a land, like peasant farmers could have a direct line to the archbishop of the country. They could call him and he'd just drop everything, whatever he's doing. This is in context where bishops previous to him, they were like administering the sacraments to the rich and famous. They're just like kind of the spirit, the religious correlate of who's who in society, but not this dude. He was like, drop everything, head on out there, 
accompany the people, you know, say a mass. And it would be, it was deeply meaningful to people. And he was just a really inspiring figure. Um, and who, he would call the National Guard out for what they did too, didn't he? Totally. And it was actually, okay, so I mentioned I worked with the the sister of Octavio Ortiz. He was the first assassin, there was a string of assassinations of of religious figures who took the side of the poor. He was the first one that happened in the city under everybody's noses. And then Romero went straight out there and the, the government says, or the National Guard who killed him said, oh yeah, well, he led a little, there was a shootout and he he was shooting at us, so we killed him, and we killed four kids in the process. You see, they all have guns. Romero saw right through it. He was like, oh, really? And these are the only five people here with guns, and they're army-issue guns that came from you. And there's a trail of blood from right here where you killed them to the rooftop alleged sniper point. I know exactly what's happening. And then the next day, he would go and announce the truth, and then all of the state media would fall in line. And that was kind of the revelation where people were like, oh, wow somebody's lying and it's the government. And from then on, people would tune in to Romero on every Sunday. You know, people who would go to, go to church and then they, over and over people tell me, then we'd go to real church, which was listening to Romero on the radio. Um, anyway, so he was just, uh, if you worked among the poor in El Salvador in the years that I did, you worked under Romero's shadow in in some way, you know, you were in contact with people who were impacted by him. Yeah. And I, uh, I like that quote, and I can't help but wonder if you saw that that was a pervading feeling. He said, I don't believe in death without resurrection. If you kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadorian people. Absolutely. I thought that was beautiful. And so you must have felt that presence then within everyone. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it was palpable. I got to El Salvador. The war ended in 92. I first got there in 95. It's three years after the war. Romero was assassinated in 1980. And you feel his presence in the struggle for justice and peace there everywhere. Unfortunately, he's like he's like Che Guevara. He's an image that people co-opt. So the left, the political left, the revolutionary left co-ops his image. And they say, he's on our side. And, the, and then the equally kind of the rich, the oligarchs, they kind of take his image and they go, he was nothing but a low down, dirty gorilla, you know, insurgent. Um, neither of those is exactly true to who he, he was. And I think he, he lived a life that was like exactly in the footsteps of Jesus. Mm, that's, that's, uh, to be in that kind of recent presence of that and to see it would, I would think would almost feel like what the first century uh, uh, growth of Christianity experienced to have Jesus that so recently present and then to have Romero so recently present would be uh, an extraordinary experience. So much so, not just Romero too, just living, just being a Christian, just leading a Bible study under the mango tree and living among landless peasants, who consider themselves to be living under occupation, there were so many parallels to first century Christianity that it was really remarkable. And that's what kept me in Tierra Nueva for a long time and in other communities like that through this, this organization, Christian-based communities of El Salvador. I maintained faith-sharing relationships between 18 rural communities and churches in the U.S., Canada, and Australia 
But one of the main reasons I did that, I was, I, I just loved just reading whatever Bible passage you've heard all your life. And then hearing how somebody in living in a developing world context, hears that it was so much more like the first century situation than our reality. And if anything, like if we put ourselves in the first century, you know, we're, we're Roman citizens, you know, you really have to defect from something truly to be participating in the Jesus movement as more than just kind of the Sunday morning motivational speaking business that a lot, I don't mean that really derisively. It's just kind of as a, you know, when you are the empire, that's what church ends up being often. Um, no insult to anyone's tradition intended there, but it was really fascinating to get out of my cultural origin and just listen to how normal people living in a society with all those parallels to the first century heard their stories and saw themselves in those stories. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, uh, we don't live our, our belief out loud. I def not loud enough. I don't think we do. I don't think we put our, our belief into action. I think we talk about our belief more than anything. I think, um, I, I have to say, man, if I could go back, I would have loved to do what you did. I always think about that. There were parts in my early years where I thought, I, I feel like I, if I don't explore the world now, I'm not going to. And then I got pregnant. Yeah. And then I didn't. But um, I really loved living through your experience or, or, or being a part of your experience. And the way that um, you write is very different than what I'm accustomed to. You are a poet. And um, you have a very particular twist on poetry that I hadn't expected. So when I started listening, for some reason I had it in my head, I was just going to hear statements and argumentation. And I started listening and I'm like, wow, okay, I got to listen to this again. That was really pretty. And something I hadn't put myself into in a while. I, I grew up wanting to be a poet and I went to college for English lit and um I don't know, somewhere along the lines, maybe just being caught up in motherhood and then in marriage, I, I backed away from poetry. But that used to be the way I expressed myself to anyone. I would write you a poem. And um, I just thought that uh, the butterflies in God's stomach, I can't wait for it to be published because it's just a, a completely different genre of expression of God that I hadn't considered incorporating into my own research, I should say. Um, so what is the deal with your book? I had noticed something about how it's been difficult to get a Christian publisher to pick up on it. And you had a friend tell you because it was just so boldly confident and blatant that that is the exact reason it would be rejected. And so how has that been like for you? And, and, and what can we do to support you and make sure that this book comes into publication. This book's going to get published. And I've decided, okay, so so my experience with the industry really was I signed with an agent. And when I've pitched it to agents, they across the board have recognized, you know, its quality. It doesn't fit in, as you might have imagined from the portion that you read. If you've read the whole thing, you would see it even, even more clearly. It doesn't fit in. It, it, it doesn't fit in to the categories that publishing businesses think in. And and um, William Paul Young faced the same thing with The Shack. He couldn't get it published. You know, he they 
pitched it to all publishing agents. There is a literary, you know, there's an acquisitions agent at every publisher who is like, oh, I hope that my boss doesn't find out that I'm the one that rejected the shack. And it's the same <laughs> thing. You know, the, the response was, well, the publishing industry is not looking for this because it's an allegory and this is not the 17th century, you know, or something like that. You know, there's, so there's a similar thing happening. The Butterflies in God's Stomach, its subtitle is The Bible's Love Story Recomposed as a Romantic Adventure in Poems and Prose. So it tells the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as that love story of God wooing humankind to be his bride in a world where we humans have lost the plot. And it tells part of it. There's a lot of parts of the biblical story, especially where it feels like God is intervening. Think of those big episodes, many of them having to do with water, by the way, but of you know, Noah's Ark or you just think any parting of the Red Sea. You don't want your reader in a cultural debate. You don't want your reader going, you have to believe this happened or else you're going to go to hell forever. And you don't want your reader, if you're trying, if your goal is for the reader to experience this as a story, you don't want them to go, well, actually, this is a part of ancient Mesopotamian flood myths that predate Judaism by, you know, and so what was the way to keep the reader in a playful, imaginative space where you hear the Bible's deeply poetic and it is a literary tradition. We, it's crazy that at a seminary, you can take a course on the Bible as literature. It's, it's like going to a Mexican restaurant and they're like, we're going to today, we're serving tacos as food. Like that's what tacos are. They're food. The Bible is literature. You're taking a course on the Bible as literature. That's what it is. Like, and so the hope was to, to, to do my part in my way to kind of recoup that literary tradition. Like look in our circles, everybody talking about the Bible, they're doing it through some kind of like lens that it's the inheritance of Aristotelian logic, even if you use that lens to reject Platonism, da, 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 you're still going, even the smart kids in class, they're still going to the Bible and they're using it as some kind of book that you wield around and you go, here's how you develop a coherent, systematic theology. Well, that's not what the people who wrote the Bible and about whom the Bible is written, that's not what they were doing. I mean, it's, it's okay to do it. And Paul was doing some of that, but Paul was also reframing a story. And Paul was doing some of that kind of um, things that look to us today like theology. He was doing that in order to communicate to Greek people. But he was also resonating even with Greek poetry. There is a fascinating amount of Homeric echoes in the, the New Testament tradition, as well as just a deep, deep, endless echoes of of with with Hebrew tradition before it, even more so. That's the rabbit hole I went down for many years and and kind of the endeavor of writing this book. It was kind of like I wanted to do something really ambitious that was like, I'd never done anything where I said, this is the best I can do. Here you go. And one of my literary heroes is James Joyce. And he worked for 10 years on Ulysses. And he worked for 14 years on Finnegan's Wake, which nobody understands. But if you get deep enough into it, it'll bore you to tears if you're not an initiate. But if you get deep enough into it, you go, whoa, there's layers and layers of genius here. And I kind of wanted to do my version of that. I'm not as smart as James Joyce, but like 
wanted to do that. So I worked on the Butterflies and Godstone for many years. I'm finally coming back to your question. Um, and so pitched it out and it was just like, we love it. The reception is we love it. We know acquisitions agents are going to like it because that's, they tend to be the literary people, but what the publishing industry is about in this day and age really is helping you develop a product to sell to an audience that you already have. And just personality wise, I'm not very much of a, Hey, look at me. I haven't done anything to become a public person. So I haven't, I don't have like a, a, a big platform. And that, that really is, is the business decision that gets it shot down by um, publishers. I've since decided I'm going to self publish it. There is probably an, a level of perspective, perfectionism that is an expression of fear subconsciously on some level working. I'm pretty sure that's the case. I also, for some reason, I wanted to change my relationship with the book. I didn't want to have any hopes attached to it. I want to be able to put it out into the world like, hey, I found this thing that this former version of me wrote some years ago, and what am I going to do with it? Here it is. Another thing I wanted to do, and this was this was a a literary agent in the Christian world, she, she said to me, you know, there are probably a dozen poems in here that could be standalone 32-page books. So I've started extracting those. So there's going to really be a Butterflies in God's Stomach universe of material out there. So I'm kind of waiting so that I can, um, I'm front-loading the work so that I can like put out stuff in the butterfly's orbit. So one thing will be the butterflies in God's stomach, and that's the book, right? It's the book that tells the Bible's love story. And then there will be, so for example, there's a poem in there called The Cosmic Christ. And then there will be a book, I'm forgetting the, with the title, but it'll be like a 70-page book with it's really easy to read with a lot of white space that has the Cosmic Christ poem. Then it'll have in prose, hey, in a more didactic way, here's the biblical origins of the cosmic Christ dating back, you know, here's its Old Testament roots. Here's how it resonated to a Greek ear in the first century or a Roman ear. Here's what it meant to, to Paul's Greek or Roman audience. Here's what it meant to a Hebrew audience. And here's where it's from. And here's the heritage and lineage of this term that Sounds a little woo-woo, you know, the, but here's like the biblical basis for it and where it, how it emerges and what it means. And then here, section three is, here is scripture's plot. And I use a 15-beat, three-act plot structure. And I go, here's where you are in God's story. Here's where this concept is. So I'm, there's going to be little poetry books like that that unpack the cosmic Christ, the incarnation, the resurrection. And I'm working on those. And I'm looking for artists to partner with me to make it a visual experience also. And so mm. I've I like that. That would that would be something you would want to offer up to people who are going through deconstructionism and transformations and are trying to hop on a new path because correct me if I'm wrong, you have a you don't have the typical eschatology either. Correct. Well, I, I guess my eschatology might look something more. Um, I see eschatology in a literary sense. First of all, I don't. I don't think anybody is writing about this. Is what the end of the world will look like thousands of years ago when it comes. Uh, I guess who in like for people that are theologically inclined, my eschatological vision kind of maps pretty closely. That like N.T. Wright, like surprised by hope. That was a big game changer for me. And I do think eschatology is everything. Like 
what we imagine our future to be. It, it's a function of human psychology that we move in the direction of the things we most talk about. You'll see that in your own behavior on social media. If you if you just tend to talk about uh, more cynical things, you gather cynicism around you. Similarly, um, you know, if you see if your eschatological vision is a left behind scenario, that's going to affect how you interface with all manner of things, non-Christians, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. If you see the end of our story as the actual biblical, the actual end of the Bible, there's no point in the Bible where everybody gets sucked up to heaven and the hellbound or left behind. That, that, that just doesn't happen. That's not in the Bible. Um, there's a whole story about how we inherited that. But the end of the, the story in the Bible is, you know, Jerusalem descending and God and humankind becoming one in, in a new creation on a new earth that heaven joins. It's a, it's a beautiful vision. And if you tend to think, just storytelling-wise, that's where we're headed. And I want to participate in that. It makes a world of, of difference from, you know, we're trying to remain like doctrinally pure so we get sucked up into a heaven somewhere else and while everybody else burns in hell because they were unlucky or whatever. I can't help but wonder if the way a person views the end of times has an impact on how they view a lot of current issues that we're dealing with and whether they choose to reject them or accept them and whether they choose to do anything to thwart some of the issues. And more specifically, I think that about people who believe in a hell or believe in a superior group that will be saved. I don't want to make any assertions, but sometimes I can't help but see it leads me to, to to justify why they're not so concerned with the effects of climate change, with the way we treat our planet, with just understanding why it's important to not only love people, but our planet, but nature, and to try and find a unity and connection with nature as well as humanity. And so, I mean, do you see any kind of parallels to how maybe having the wrong kind, I don't want to say the wrong, but a skewed vision for end of times impacting people and, and what they will or will not do to help out outwardly. Absolutely. And what's interesting about that correlation is it maps not just onto Christians, I mean, significantly, yes, onto Christians, but it's absorbed in culture. And I think people would be surprised about how much actually comes from storytelling tradition and from literature, how the extent to which people's vision of hell is formed by Dante's Inferno, which was written centuries ago. When people talk about hell, they're not referring to Gehenna, the trash dump outside of Jerusalem that used to be a place where you would sacrifice to Molech, you know, sacrifice human babies. They're not referring to that. That's if Jesus, when Jesus said hell, that's what he's referring to. Often we're referring to Dante's Inferno. Often when we'd have our, our, our vision of heaven contemporarily, wildly influenced, especially in evangelical culture. But my point is that bleeds everywhere. Uh, formed by Left Behind, those aren't even good novels. Like they're terrible novels with terrible eschatology, terrible theology. Nonetheless, they shape, if you ask Sam Harris, who's not, you know, 
he's he's not only non-Christian, he's an atheist, he's dogmatically atheist, and his background is Jewish. Uh, you ask him what Christians think about heaven and hell, a lot of that's going to come from left behind. Oh, my gosh. And so that the, the butterflies in God's stomach is my contribution to going like, here's a healthier vision of what this story is actually telling. But yes, if your theology is all just, uh, we're going to blow this joint, we're getting out of here, then you may as well use the earth however you want to. It, it's rational. If that's, if that's what happens mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. that this is just a blip. If you really believe this is just a tiny blip, my grandchildren can be born straight into a jackal's mouth and die instantly. And it doesn't matter because we're all going to go to he heaven afterwards. I guess somebody in some theologies might need a baptism before they hit the jackal's mouth. But my point is if we're bailing, if we're getting out of here, <laughs> then you're going to see the earth one way. If your eschatological vision aligns with the vision revealed in the book of Revelation to John of Potmos that, that earth, this is in sense a contained system. Like whatever consciousness is, it comes out of this earth and returns to something. And But everything that's happening is happening right here. And at the end of the Bible, God joins humankind right here on this earth. How much of a shithole do we want it to be? It can't be if God's actually joining, right? If, if everything is being redeemed to a God who is love, if the kingdom of God is the world as it would look if God was on the throne and Caesar was not, or Trump was not, or Obama was not, then we're having a vision of earth, of life here. All these cultures that are here, um, Christians, Hindus, atheists, Muslims, all of it, it's all going down right here. And we're going to steer this story either towards more death and destruction, as we've been wont to do since Cain killed Abel, or we're going to steer, steer the story towards a vision of a new life here on an earth that heaven joins. And I think that we as humans, we're storytelling animals. You don't make sense. Meaning only comes from story. Um, if somebody gets, okay, there's a, there's a malaria disease is a tangent, but there's a malarial drug called mefloquin. And in a small portion of the population, it crosses the blood brain barrier and causes really deep psychosis. There's a really good book about this. I'm, I'm saying this because an employee of mine once suffered this mefloquine psychosis, which can last days, weeks, months, years, or indefinitely. You can go crazy for the rest of your life because of this. A lot of PTSD, by the way, is brain damage from mefloquine, anti-malarial drugs. Thankfully, in the military, they don't use it anymore. But here, anymore. yeah, they, they, and they used to. And so you might remember stories of like during Desert Storm, uh, you know, there was a soldier who was like, model guy, upstanding citizen. And one day he just shot a whole bunch of innocent civilians. Well, that was because of a psychosis caused by this malarial drug. They later found out. In any event, I'm bringing this up and bringing up this real left turn and tangent. There's a, there's a story called the answer to the riddle is me about this dude that goes to India and he just suddenly wakes up with perfect amnesia. He doesn't know a single thing about his entire life. Instantly, he formed a story. 
The police told him, you probably use drugs. And he was like, oh, he, in his mind, he made up a pass. He envisioned the apartment where he would like use drugs. This guy wasn't even like an addictive drug user, right? I'm just saying whatever, the only way you ever make sense of anything is by putting a story around it. Somebody made this comment on, yeah. on my Facebook. Well, instantly, if it has sense, if it's not just a jumble of words, it, the only sense is because you assume a motivation, you assume a, you know, you put a story around it and that's the only way we, and the Bible is the big meta story. It is far from being just a mere source book for making religious rules or something that a theologian or a pastor uses as the authority, really just to preserve their job. Let's Let's be honest. We know what's going on. You know, you, you go, you can't know anything unless you know the original Greek. Well, why do you say that? You say that because you know the original Greek. You want people to buy your books, right? We know what's happening. I think that too. <laughs> I know the people that are so hard on translation. I'm like, God didn't want it to be this hard. Okay. I know that. Stop. And I get it. You're important. If we didn't have you, you would have never went to college for what you did. And I appreciate you for letting me know that I didn't need grief. <laughs> and I learned tons from those people, right? I'm thankful they're doing what they're doing, right? But yeah. that, sometimes now me that too. I've returned to the United States, I feel like as I engage this world of ideas, it's like, what kind of cult have I joined? It's just this weird theology cult where to be a Christian has something to do with picking apart theology and like using the Bible in ways that I don't, I don't think it's not how the people in the Bible are using the Bible, yeah. right? Nobody, nobody in the Bible is going like, uh, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? That, that salvation language derives from actually getting saved, getting saved from Egyptians, getting saved from Babylonians, getting saved from Persians. It's the way people fought in and used the language of salvation, you know, in the Bronze Age and in the Iron Age, there's just this straight line to salvation from a Roman Empire that looks like it's taking over the known universe, you know, from from your perspective, right? Is God going to save us? And then it blasts out at the end of the Christian vision into salvation for, and this is incredible that for visionary foresight, um, but it is in the happening in the realm of visions and mystics and things like that. But like this vision of a new heaven and an earth, new earth restored all to a God who is love like that. That's a beautiful vision. Um, so anyway, I, I think the entire endeavor is more literary and poetic than everyone is pretending like it is. I mean, and I get I understand everybody's motivation. If I was a pastor, maybe I'd be up on the pulpit going you definitely have to believe the right interpretation, which is mine. And thankfully, you can get it here every Sunday morning and draw in more jingle jangle to my collection plate. But a lot of that is eroding with things like this, with social media, the kind of nodes of communication are bypassing the gatekeepers and the controllers of public perception of what scripture is in the first place. And that's why so many people... Um, your age and younger are all they're talking about is deconstruction, right? That's all they're doing is because they've been fed this line, but, but they also have social media links to the world's most preeminent theologians who, who know a hell of a lot more than their local pastor. And they're like, something's not lining up. I'm deconstructing. I'm deconstructing. 
and and there is something about we're in the midst of a very big revolution. All revolutions are tied to technological revolutions, and the Protestant Reformation happened because of the printing press. Martin Luther was not like I mean, he was devout, and by the way, trying to be a devout Catholic. Like he didn't start, and he didn't go like I'm starting the Lutheran Church. He was a Reformation movement within what he thought was, was the universal church. He was just like, we're doing this wrong, guys. Anybody else noticed? Well, those Luther voices, they've happened in every century previous to Luther. It, the difference was just printing technology. Well, here we are in the midst of, you're a broadcaster. Like, uh, you know, um, the way we understand our reality is changing and and the old ways of doing things are good and they're going to remain, Right. Um, there in, in a thousand years or in a hundred years, there will still be your local church will still exist. I bet it's the nature of technological revolutions. Uh, a guy named Kevin Kelly does a lot of work on this. Um, it, but anyway, they'll still exist, but there's going to be new forms taking place. So like, what is our understanding that will, that, that, that is more appropriate to the evolution in which, you know, that we're in the midst of. Yeah, question. I like what you say about that. I think a lot of people see the church is going to just die and disappear and never exist again. And I, and I don't think that's what the case is. I think there are so many churches just closing and ending because, as as silly as it says it sounds to say, they're not competing with what's available to all of us through the internet. I mean, I see a lot of pastors are. I mean, I think uh, Zond in Jerzak. I have, I'm a fan of someone named Danny Prada who um, teaches at a Heartway Church in Florida. They're doing it differently. They're teaching differently. And they're, they're trying to, they're trying to not so much judge and shame anymore as include. And I just think the church is going to go through a shifting and a weeding out of, you know, the ones that aren't willing to compete or try and morph with the times and the ones that are willing are going to draw in bigger crowds and they don't necessarily need to draw in crowds in the pews they're going to just draw in crowds the way we were meant to not by quantitative record keeping but are we are we quali qualitatively offering the gospel to people in such a way that it's transforming them and the way they're treating others. And it doesn't matter if they're showing up in a physical building and telling me they're seeing it or they're hearing it. I want to see it. And yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's what's coming with this wave of technology. It's just, it's time to, uh, it's time to change or it's time to sit down. <laughs> yeah. And it's all happening, you know, and I, I, whenever I talk about these things, I, it's, I want to say, it's not obvious how it should all go down. It's not obvious what church should be. But also, I think a lot of us have a very anemic or narrow view of what the church is. Like some, a lot of people, when they say the church or they say the church is dying. Well, yeah, they're talking about those Sunday morning motivational speaking. The institutional church. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Institutional church or even the institution of opening a non institution You know what I mean? Like there's the yeah. kind of high steeple denominational churches. Well, there's a big exodus from those. And then, you know, there's things come and go with the times. There's, you know, for a while, like everybody was like, uh, oh, what we need is cooler music to attract the youth. Stop using S's. Start using Z's. The kids yeah. think that's cool. Everybody's scrambling. They're trying different things. But even the notion that the collection of those Sunday morning 
it sounds d- dismissive um, when I say Sunday morning motivational speaking businesses. I admire <laughs> the heck out of a lot of people that are running those motivational speaking businesses. It's what they look like. And even that is an institution. Did you ever, did, have you ever encountered uh, um, George Barna and Frank Viola's book, uh, Pagan Christianity? Pagan you know, Christianity. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, there's some good bits in there. I, if I remember right, I felt like it was a little, maybe written with a little bit bigger of a chip on the shoulder towards institutional church than even I have. Nonetheless, it's worth recognizing if even just to calm your spirit, it's worth recognizing that, look, the institution of a paid pastor, the institution of uh, a sermon, that doesn't come from Christian, that comes from like stoic philosophers who were itinerant teachers who take up a collection to make a living uh, as a philosopher. They want to just, they're communicating, you know, in, in the lack of a university system, they're communicating what the philosophers are thinking. And the pastors were like, oh, we could use that too. So the, the, the dearest, the, what that book is about is how many of the dearest institutions of the church have pagan origins. I don't see anything wrong with, if pagans have tools that we can use to manifest God's kingdom, bring it on. If Buddhists have tools and they do have, uh, have tools to manifest the kingdom of God, let's incorporate them. And And that's another reason for the story focus of butterflies in God's stomach. Cause I deep down believe that's the gift that we offer the world. The Bible is a radically unique thing in that every other ancient literary tradition gets quashed at some point. So, so Babylonian literature is every bit as rich as Hebrew literature, but Babylon ceased to exist when Cyrus the Great just went in and took over Babylon and it was over. Like the episode in the Bible where you would read about that is, 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 you know, when Cyrus takes over Babylon and he's the one who funds the construction of the Jerusalem temple again and and frees the Jews from exile. Most Jews were like, it's so sweet living for this amazing king, the Savior, who, who Isaiah called the Messiah. Um, well, I'm going to stay here. And that's what most people did. They stayed here in Babylon because Cyrus was awesome. And, and the minority left. But the point is, from that point on, Babylonian literature is just gone. We don't have it. Whereas the Hebrew tradition is amazing in that it's it preserved the story through defeat, through reconstruction, through another, de- you know, through defeat by the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, like is such a powerful literary tradition that it kept on going and preserved the story through the f- most crucial 1500 years in the formation of human civilization. Like w- everything about human civilization is our inheritance basically from the agrarian revolution 10,000 years ago to Rome. Like well, what we inherited, that, I mean, you can trace that lineage straight from the Roman empire, you know, in America through Great Britain to us. Like, and and it's interesting that the Bible kind of um, preserved this fascinating, prophetic, countercultural narrative through it all. It's a treasury that no other, you know, when you look at Hindu 
texts. They're filled with wisdom and poetry and beauty. But the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, they are of their era. They're from the Axial Age, as opposed to being an ongoing literary tradition that was alive through century after century. And th as the Bible was, and it, that's a cool thing to offer to the world. Hey, here's the narrative through the lens of this literary tradition. That's really amazing. That spans this point and fascinating that. So here we are with a book that's really a library of books. It's this literary collection composed over the course of about 1500 years by 40 plus different authors and that number gets really big if you if you were to include people who like preserved it as an oral tradition before it got written down in 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 exile in Babylon but you know when we talk about people putting pen to paper it's people say around 40 authors over 1500 years in three different languages on three different continents that that would line up and tell one coherent story it's like, whoa, there's something deep going on here. Um, something coming in the same way that individuals produce stories. When you go to sleep at night, your brain's going to tell some story in, in a dream. We produce stories in movies and in film. We tell stories around a campfire. This is just what humans do. It's how we make sense of reality. That we are collectively doing that over time is really interesting. And one of the things for listeners you know, the, the question arises, okay, Paul, are you just imposing a story onto the Bible? Because you can do that too. And that is what people are doing, right? And they're doing a bad job of it, like often, right? Like when you go, here's what it's all about. You were born depraved and Jesus died so that you can have that depravity lifted from you so you can go to heaven later. That's a story. That's a narrative people are forming around three little tidbits in the Bible. And it, it, it's, a, it's just a crap story. It's terrible. It starts, you know, it's gotten... <laughs> Storytelling is actually a science we've looked at, like through, through the one, one area I go with this is the filmmaking industry. Now there's a $10 billion per year storytelling laboratory, right? Where they're testing plots and structures. And one of the things that that whole Hollywood culture has there's so much money in it. It's produced as screenwriting guides, right? Where they're distilling down. Here's the beats you need to keep somebody on the edge of their seat for 90 minutes during a film. And so I took a 15 beat three act story structure that's used in common use in Hollywood. Every screenwriter knows about it. It's notorious almost because it ruined Hollywood because every, every movie now has these 15 beats and three acts, whether you're aware of it or not. But um, I applied those to the Bible. So every screenwriter would know, you know, like, okay, if you want to, if you got some, if you want to make a, a movie about characters that nobody cares about, like little cars or little beings that look like tater tots or whatever, right? Pick a Pixar movie. Then here's one way you can get people deeply in love with toys or whatever, or cars is you just use the structure. It's an opening image, theme stated, set up, catalyst, debate, break into act two, set up a B story, have some fun in games. These are all technical terms for screenwriters. 
there's a midpoint. There's a point where the bad guys close in. There's an all is lost moment, a dark night of the soul, a break into act three, a finale, and then a final image. Like screenwriters all know that. If you take those 15 beats in three acts and apply them to Hebrew and Christian scripture, they fit like a glove. And that's mind blowing. And it doesn't work if you just use the Hebrew Bible. You, it's the sum of Hebrew Christian scripture, what we now call the Bible, um, that 15 beats and three act plot structure. It just works perfectly. And it's, it's a trip. It's crazy that it does. And that's a fascinating thing. It is. But, you know, after you said that, I started thinking about, too, I, I don't watch a lot of movies. I'm not very good with sitting still. But when I do, I swear every time I watch a movie, I'm like, it's just like the Bible, isn't it? You know, and I have these conversations with my husband and I'm like, isn't it like this one thing that Paul said in Romans and then or else like with I, I say this often too, the Avengers movies. I'm like, so biblical, so biblical. Yeah. I, I The first movie, I, I think the Iron Man movie I saw I was like so biblical. And my ki- my older kids were like, mom, you're such a weirdo. No, they're not. And I, as these movies gradually come out and there's so many other, and I'm like, see, <laughs> see, you see what I, and they're like, oh yeah. And I'm like, yeah, because that's the original plot everywhere and everything. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember learning that in college too. We broke that idea down that throughout fiction, you can pull things straight from the Bible and you're like, that's that story. That's that story. And we don't realize it, but yeah, they trick us. They seduce us with the same plot scheme. And what? It's just like reading the Bible. One way, now, one way of looking at that, and a lot of what people would look at it this way, and they would say, well, that just goes to show how influential the Bible has been on all human culture, whether you're a Christian or an atheist. And that might be true, yeah. but it may also be that what we see in storytelling traditions, like most writers, they're not like, the, the 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 Marvel Comics universe, those those screenwriters, they're not really trying. I, I'm guessing they're not trying to go. Let's teach a good Bible. They're not Veggie Tales, right? <laughs> right? But but they're just trying to tell a good story. So one way to look at it, like I just said, is is well, that's how pervasive Christian and biblical culture has been on culture as a whole. Another way of looking at it is, oh no, these are themes that are emerging from us from somewhere deeper. When it happens yes. in the Bible, when it happens on the silver screen, that um, there's something about, you know, there's this body of work in linguistics. Um, you know, there's an academic, Noam Chomsky. Many might know him as kind of a political analyst. Well, his real, like, academic work at MIT is in linguistics. Like, if you made a Mount Rushmore of linguistics, it might have you know, Aristotle, Wittgenstein, and Noam Chomsky on it. And his work is about universal grammar. It's about the the phenomenon that independent of education levels, of the way if people are formally trained or not trained, children across cultures and around the world, language and syntactic structures emerge at roughly the same time and at the same order. Whether you're talking about a uneducated child in Papua New Guinea who doesn't even know what a big city is, or you know a, the most you know militantly educational community in Japan, right, or culture, right, that language happens, and that, that, that you know that 
as opposed to language being taught, language might be something that just emerges out of syntactic structures that are innate to the human experience in the same way that people dream cross-culture. Yeah. You didn't learn to dream. Well, language emerges. Stories may also just emerge from who you are as, just by the, as a function of the way you're struck constructed biologically and physiochemically, you know, you, you stories grow out of us in the same way that your hair grows out of you. You tend not to think it because you can externalize a story and say, here's this, here's the story. I wrote it. I made that. Well, that might make as just as much sense as cutting off your hair and putting it on the table and going, I made that right. Well, who's the yeah. you, right? What, do you know how to grow your eyelashes? Um, who, do, when was, do, are you remembering to beat your heart right now? who are you? You know? Oh, um, yeah. And so stories are coming out of us in, in that way also, which again, makes the, this big meta story all the more interesting because it's happening in, in what I'm referring now to the Bible tradition, cross-culturally and, and over vast swaths of time. Is it more yeah. interesting? I find it more interesting uh, to me. The, if the Bible really is, like just written by God without human help, you know, God is maybe a C minus writer, like in some, in some spots, right. It's not very to the point, the way, the way where you even, the way even our theological heroes are using the Bible. I'm just not sure that's what it's for. And a lot of this happened, you know, the, the yeah. literary tradition of Hebrew culture in a sense I, I refer to it as an art heist, the biggest art heist in the history of humankind. You have this like collection of literary mm -hmm. art that, you know, if you had to nail it to a date, it would be in the mid fourth century when Constantine like gets kind of councils yeah. of bishops to go, all right, what's in, what's out, let's make the canon and then control it. From then on, the canon's yeah. closed and it's not that's fine. They did. I actually think they did a great job of it. I, I like the books they included and exclude. Excluded books are fun too. I don't think they made any way off calls. I'm just saying, closing the tradition yeah. turns it into something that it wasn't before that. That it wasn't for Paul. That it wasn't for Jesus. And and kind of I like to I, I oversimplify and make caricatures just to. It's hard to communicate a concept that you don't already believe. That's why the news sucks, because it all happens in like one minute segments. You can't open somebody's eyes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a meaningful way in a 30 second news segment or a one minute news segment or a yeah. two minute. That's a long time for the news to spend two minutes on something, right? But like one caricature I come up with is kind of like in the Bible itself, it documents a history of the poets and prophets and visionaries who wrote the Bible and about whom the Bible's written. And they're living in tension with these kind of religious dogmatists who maintain our institutions. Now, they're not useless and they're not the enemy. It's fun to frame them as the enemy because um, it's fun to pick on them because I got to, you know, I'm on the other side. <laughs> but even in the Bible, yeah. you do see <laughs> it, it, it is that dynamic tension and something happens when the canons closed and it's like poets, prophets, the kinds of people who wrote and are responsible for this tradition. And I see Jesus and John and the disciples firmly 
on that side of the spectrum and in tension with the religious dogmatists of their day, as were all the prophets of antiquity. Um, when those voices are excluded because it's like, okay, Jesus came and now he's gone. We've nailed it. We got this wrapped up. All we got to do is interpret it in a way that you, in a way that's congruent with the empire really is the tradition we inherit. Right. Um, and so there's yeah. a tradition that I think is beautiful that needs to be um, recuperated. That's not fully recuperated by just deriving better and better theo systematic theologies from the Bible. So now you have a rash of people going like, you're not going to burn in hell. Look at this passage and this passage and this passage. Look, you can be, a, or look at this logical argument where um, you can be a universalist. God's going to get his way. Okay, good, good. You're still just using as we all are, the Bible, to, um, to, 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 to justify a certain way of thinking. That's all fine, too. I guess in addition to um, how right is it, we should be, and what the poet looks like, looks at is how beautiful is it. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah, for me, I never, I think it's unfair to say like the, that the canon doesn't continue. And there's too much of me that believes that okay well jesus was like i'm gonna come back okay how do we know jesus yeah. hasn't already come back you close that book you're like we're not adding to it you reject any other books that try to even symbolically add to it but i'm like if he said he was coming back how do i know he wasn't mlk jr how do i know he wasn't gandhi how do i know he wasn't oscar romero i mean he said he was coming back we have these expectations that if he comes back, he comes back exactly the same way he did 2000 years ago. But, well, I don't know. I, I, I subscribe to this concept that God is above time. And so he could basically just go bloop, 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 bloop wherever he wanted to. And that's not the end all. And we shouldn't have an expectation because Jesus proved he let down the expectation in the first place. He wasn't the Messiah that came to slice and dice all the bad guys. He came and was like, I don't know what you expected, but here I am. Why would we think there's another standard that would be put up to that that would make, I mean, I would think we wouldn't recognize Jesus right away because we're holding on to that expectation unless you are willing to recognize that Jesus yeah. is out there and that you do see glimpses of him. But you're too stuck on this idea. I know the book shot. That means Jesus is only coming yeah. one more time. That's at the end all, end all. And I'm like, but Jesus could be in yeah. your neighbor. Like I'm tracking with what? you a hundred percent. And Jesus himself, mm -hmm. like the example of Jesus, uh, defying all messianic expectation, all of it, all of it. None, not nobody. I mean, we retrospectively look back at the suffering servant passages in Isaiah and we go, there you go. That's where the prophets predicted him. Nobody read Isaiah and said, oh yeah, there's going to be a humble peasant from Nazareth who rides a donkey and gets crucified. Nobody, nobody, nobody. All messianic expectation yeah. was the king who's going to set things right. And nobody was imagining a king who's um, like Jesus, right? Similarly, we go, oh, and the, the Bible is an unfolding story of, of God's movement. And then people go, that's how God moves. And they expect God to move the same way the next time as it's the prophetic tradition is to be tuned into the next new thing that God is doing. And that's hard to do because it always defies expectations yeah. in precisely the way that Jesus defied 
everybody's expectations. So yeah, you're right. You're you're doing the wrong thing if you go, oh yeah, it's going to be Jesus. Going to have long, flowing brown Clairol hair. He's going to come riding in on a on a cloud because that's what Daniel says here. No, now like, and and who's to say that the coming the 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 Christ of messianic expectation ought to be a, a single human being. It might be the collective of all humans. And what happens in our traditional systematic theologies is you just start dicing up distinctions in ways that just may not be compatible with what God is doing, right? So then people go, oh, yes, you're right. The, 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 the coming Messiah is this, is the body of Christ. Oh, it's all Christians. Well, is it? How are you so sure about that? Jesus wasn't a Christian and didn't mention it. He didn't start Christianity like, we're building all of this, right? Like, so why do you think that the body of Christ refers to Christians? Like, and, and, and that's what I try to portray in Butterflies is it's, it's not the fake theology story we make up that the Bible is telling. It's the actual story of all humankind that we are going to, if you're non-religious at all, humans are going to end this story either in death and destruction through the many ways that we're finding to destroy each other in our, in our biosphere. I mean, just take it out. And I don't know if it's going to take a thousand years or a million years, but like we're on a trajectory that's going either towards more and more death and destruction, you know, and our ways of causing destruction only get more powerful and never less, or you're, we're going to move the story towards, uh, a world where love conquers all like in actuality, take the Bible and the Christianity and religion out of it. Like that's actually what we're doing as a species here on earth. Well, I happen to think the Bible actually tells that story. Not, it's not just a big pile of, of like, of, of from which you extract religious rules. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Well, I don't have any more questions written down. So I don't know. I think that's a good place to leave it. I think that's going to leave a lot of people a big old bite to chew on because I know a lot of people aren't, you know, I did, I did temporarily a previous podcast and it was called bookish. The canon continues. And that phrase was a lot for a lot of people. Like what? What? And I I can't help but see that in 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 all works of art, every iota of art. I can't help but see it, it continuing, because I don't think it should continue in some kind of textual, uh, uh, lined up, perfect, logically, apologetically, brilliantly debatable kind of ideas. I think it's so much more, and we have such narrow ideas of what God's expression looks like. And so I just, I love the, I love that you track with that, that the canon does continue and that Jesus is there. Like, I mean, I say this too. My husband was one of the first people that ever showed me what Jesus looked like. I mean, I had never seen Jesus stand before me. And that was when he forgave me for my infidelity. And I was like, this is what Jesus looks like. And it wasn't, I forgive you, but I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to rub it in your face. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to use it to control you. It was like, okay, that's the worst thing that I ever thought could possibly happen to me. And I still love you. So 
we're going to have to move on from this. And that's what Jesus looks like. Beautiful. Another, I'll comment on that um, canon thing. Like one one reason to close the canon is that you can have a closed book that you can use to control people. Another good reason to close the canon that is congruent with this kind of storytelling approach to the Bible. See, on Pentecost, what happens if you lay those 15 beats and three acts over the Bible, Pentecost is actually... Pentecost and not the incarnation is the climax of the biblical story because that's the moment where um, mm-hmm. um, where God hands the whole story up, like where all the walls come crumbling down. Pentecost is a symbolic crumbling down of all the religious and distinctions, racial distinctions of every sort that we make, right? There are people at Pentecost from Asia from Arabia, from Africa, from what we now call Europe and the ancient Near East. And they're all speaking and understanding one another. And they're all one in spirit. It's it's kind of where God's love story gets handed over to us, right? To take it to its final scene. Yeah. And, and that is the break into act three moment, right? So all the religious walls come crumbling down. Another reason to kind of wrap up the story, uh, not that this was conscious on anybody's mind, but one reason to close the canon would be to exclude a- additional voices. Another good reason is we can't fit it anymore. If we, if all those walls actually came crumbling down and we are honoring the voices that come from Asia, Arabia, Africa, like we can't put it all in the Bible. You know, you're going to put, you know, everything Martin Luther King wrote, everything Dorothy Day wrote, everything like whoever, pick it, pick it, pick it, pick it. You know, just the prophetic person at your church, the mom at your church who's like taking in frightened, pregnant young girls who'd get, otherwise get kicked out of their house, right? Like, yeah, you, you're what they're, you're yeah. what we're talking about in Acts. Um, are we going to like take your story and put it in here? No, it doesn't all fit, right? So in, you could look at it as closing the canon. You could look at it as just blasting the walls off the canon and saying it's everybody's story now and it's not geographically, ethnically, racially, religiously confined anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that. And, yeah, yeah, you think about that. If we put it all in a book, I mean, I have encyclopedias. I have encyclopedia volumes. Do you have any of those? I mean... Sometimes that's just for one year. Like when you get all the science and the the academic and the medical year, you're like, I'm running out of space. If I keep adding, that's what the canon would be. But it can continue on in individual books, just like the butterflies in God's stomach, which you will, you will. I, uh, my perfectionist me is saying, oh, it needs one more revision and then get it out either late, late fall or early next year. Um, Come hell or high water, it's going to come out probably early next year like Jen. I know how that's like. I've been I've been writing a book for over a year now. I was invited to write a book with a co-author. That didn't work out. I was determined to still write the book. Started from scratch. I think I like where I'm at, but I feel like I just yeah. I'm not there yet. I don't have enough information. I haven't been influenced enough by other people's works yet. I don't know what it is, but I'm I'm like that too. I'm a perfectionist and I'm like, nah, this isn't perfect yet. And I want my first uh, try to be perfect. And then if it fails later, I'll say I, I don't have to be perfect. Right I now I need it to be perfect. I hear you totally. And that's my disposition. <laughs> I 
am told that perfectionism is an expression of fear. I believe you, maybe so. But also, I deeply feel like the world's really freaking noisy. Like, we don't need everything everybody thinks about everything. Like, that was one of the reasons I admired James Joyce. I, like, yeah. just that endeavor of like, I have a vision artistically. I'm going to put 10 years into it and then go. When he turned in the manuscript to, of Ulysses, he says, this is Ulysses. In it, I have included so many nuances and so many puzzles as to keep scholars talking for centuries about what I re really meant. I hereby submit my immortality. <laughs> and, and there's oh been a James God. Joyce quarterly ever since. And maybe that's arrogant and navel-gazing and funny, but, uh, but it's also inspirational to me. Like, mm. what if everybody on earth said, look, I put my heart and soul into this. Here it is. Instead of I've got to publish something every year or every two years. Otherwise, my publisher says that they'll forget about me. Eh, the world's noisy enough, you know, yeah. like give put something into the exactly. world where you really put your all into it. And that's why I've never been drawn to like most books in, in Christian yes. circles. They're really what they really say is you shouldn't think that way about this. You should think this way about that. I'm just not I'm not interested in tweaking people's like. Uh, opinions about this and that. I kind of like, mm -hmm. okay, what does it look like to just see something really expansive and deep into this? So. Yeah. And we need to do it for ourselves. I think that's the thing I force myself to remember whenever I write and I get nervous or anxious or wonder if someone's going to judge it. I don't, it's not that I don't care, but I'm confident in what I'm saying and it's for me. And if other people want to reject it, so be it. And if you want to accept it, thank you. But it's for me. That's the right way to do it. My wife and I had a, like, I, I, I resigned from my job to partially to write The Butterflies in God's Stomach. This was many years ago. But it was partially also so I could, like, pull the wagon with the kids in it. And my wife could go back to school and get her PhD while she's working. And, and so I changed my life. I, I started developing slowly a freelance writing career and so that I could focus on this book. Why did I just tell you that? Because it's something you said and it just slipped my mind. Yeah. Well, that's and on that stuff. scatterbrained note. <laughs> on that scatterbrained note, <laughs> we'll hit stop. <laughs> A special thank you to Forever Sound for their musical clip, Sexy, which you hear within the podcast. For more information on how to connect with me, seek me out on social media, Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter at D Kingstrom, Instagram at D Kingstrom. For more of my work, please check me out on patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. You'll be able to see more of the content I create excerpts from my upcoming manuscript and fleshed making a monogamous relationship real and you can also support my work as always thank you for listening and until next time take care <laughs>